It's just after midnight, Monday, April 11th, 2022. You are listening to another edition of the Midnight Ride Podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Paul, how you been? Well, as you all know, I've been on this long business trip. I'm finally back, back in the home studio in the parents' basement. We're both back in the studio this week. I know. It's great to be, great to be back. But, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of questioning on this trip. Some things have just a lot of introspection, and it's made me think about the world in a different way on a couple of things. Number one. What, geez, where'd you go? Well, it was just, I, I just had to do work. It wasn't anything major, but, you know, just clients and everything like that. So, I mean, that kind of stuff's not really important. But what I did realize was that I'm working way too hard. You know, I have a family and it's, you know, what can I do? I really need to, to sort of bring it down a little bit as I get older. We love doing the podcast. I hope that's not something that you're going to cut out of your life because I have to tell you, and from some of the listener feedback, I can I can say that we all look forward to this every week. We do. And this is one, I, I could do this more than once a week. We could do it more. I mean, that's the issue is so much going on. And I said, why can't I be more like Stacey Abrams? <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit weird, but I saw this article where so in 2018, she ran for Georgia governor. In her financial disclosure, she had a net worth of $109,000. And four short years later, her net worth is now $3.17 million. And I'm trying to figure out how this happened. How do you make so much money from losing an election and not having a job? I just decided, I mean, geez. If- the grift is real. I mean, first of all, we don't know how much Paramount or whoever it is that, I think it's Paramount, that pays uh, the actors for Star Trek. She is the president of the Earth in Star Trek. That could have paid a million. Yeah, that is true. That's true. And uh, do you think those elementary schools that she took maskless pictures with, do they compensate her for the photos when she comes in or no? I don't know, but the grift is real. There's a lot of people right now, whether it's Black Lives Matter or some of these other activists that are writing books or just flat out putting their inf- their information on the internet and taking donations. And clearly she's one of those. Remember, she gets a lot of money from people that want to see her be governor of the state of Georgia. And of course, we're following that as we head towards a, a big election there in November. So I don't know. Well, it is. And in fact, I mean, her refusal to concede her loss in 2018 raised her popularity and allowed her to make more money. It's almost like Someone else I will not mention. Someone with orange hair that's refused to concede his loss. Someone that that did a rally in North Carolina last night. Yeah, that also is using a refusal to concede as a way to make money. So this is going on everywhere. And uh, Stacey Abrams is, is no different. But speaking of... I don't think you're going to be able to make any money like that just yet, unless the show takes off, which we're hoping. I would... I w- went on a trip myself this week and didn't do a lot of introspection, was frankly too busy. But I was actually in an old neighborhood. And I we don't really have a first segment this week, but we can just talk about a couple of of, uh, things that I think our listeners can relate to. But I was in an old neighborhood. When I lived in this neighborhood, which was not too long ago, 2020 timeframe, every time I would go into town, Paul, I would pass this person's house and without fail if it was daylight out, and I think at night too, there was a Black Lives Matter flag out. And this was in a pretty well-off neighborhood. 
typical virtue signaling. I never actually saw this person, but the flag was displayed prominently at the house right in the middle of this well-trafficked street. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, if, if you understand the Black Lives Matter organization, and of course there were more revelations last week about some of their business dealings, um, it kind of angers you a little bit. Well, I went by there while I was on my trip this past week, and wouldn't you know it, that flag is gone. And I thought, okay, well, maybe they saw the light. But the new flag out there, because they did have a new one out there, was not Old Glory. It was not the Stars and Stripes. It was the flag of Ukraine. <laughs> I was, and I was at a store yesterday, a prominent sporting goods store, and they had flags, we stand with Ukraine. This is the new leftist virtue signal, as we know from being on Twitter. I think you're right. The left always needs some cause to rally around. And not to mention that two years ago, the left was all about Ukraine's corruption. And now all of a sudden, Ukraine is the epiphany of freedom and democracy that... And virtue. And virtue that all of us in the world must must strive to achieve. So it is... Now, I think you and I, as conservatives, we we stand with Ukraine as well. I mean, obviously, it's a bad situation all around. It's not good if Russia starts taking over all of their neighbors. No, and no country deserves to be bombed and have their civilians killed like Russia has done to Ukraine. The Ukrainians absolutely are the victims here, and we don't want to send any message different. No, but we have seen, and I think it's interesting that you point out, we have seen a complete reversal by the corporate oligarch-owned media. I thought the best example of that was when Candace Owens was, she and other conservative media types have pointed out some of these things about Ukrainian corruption and other things. The truth is, we don't really know all the facts on the ground in that war. War is very ugly. Clearly, war crimes have been committed by Russia. They have been alleged against Ukraine. And in some cases, you have seen President Zelensky come out and say, hey, guys, let's try to follow the Geneva Convention, because there have been a couple of questionable episodes on the Ukrainian side. War is very ugly. But the New York Times contacted Candace Owens, famous conservative podcaster, and said, hey, where are you getting all this stuff about Ukrainian corruption? They were trying to do kind of a hit piece on her. And she said, well, guys, I'm confused because... And she sent back about six or seven different links of their own stories that talked about Ukrainian corruption, said, I got it all from the New York Times. Is that wrong? <laughs> I remember. I remember <laughs> when she did that. I mean, I don't even think they had any. Did When she did that, did Twitter take down her account? <laughs> There's like, it's like mic drop. So Twitter's like, oh, we better delete that. <laughs> She's quite good at the mic drops. But yeah, Ukraine is the new leftist virtue signal. What, what did you notice out there on your trip or anything interesting happened in your life? One thing I really, I, this is where I really need feedback from you and from our audience, because I think everybody's going to be interested in responding and maybe we can do some screenshots of this text message conversation. No names included, of course, completely anonymous, but love to get some feedback from our followers about what to do with my friend here. We could put the screenshots up on Twitter. Remember, we are at Midnight Ride Pod. And of course, you can reach us at on email at the Midnight Ride Podcast at gmail.com. 
So those are a couple of ways that you can chime in on on this. And I don't know what it is, but I'm waiting with bated breath, Paul. So a friend of mine that I've literally had as one of my best friends for the past almost 30 years was always a libertarian, very lean, very far to the right, loves Reagan, loves Republicans, always very consistent, completely one of us. A great American. A great American at the midnight ride. And then he did have some issues with Trump. You know, I, in, the, during the, in 2016, he was supporting Rubio. I told him that Trump was the person to get behind. He was going to win. And he did get behind him. And then he, he did get behind Trump. I was supporting Rubio, too. And then when Rubio dropped out, I eventually got behind Trump and, and I voted. Well, you remember that you and I were at a baseball game when Trump's poll numbers first started to go up in 2016. And that is right. And I told you I was supporting him and uh, in the beginning and everybody thought I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But so he's been sending me these texts lately about how we're headed towards civil war and politics are getting too divisive. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but, but I did send him an article that was showing the left acting in a way that was being very divisive. And what I did was I sent him a a, a text of a link about Los Angeles County banning official travel to Florida and Texas over their LGBTQ policies. Obviously, there are no LGBTQ policies that's completely made up. But L.A. County is using that political ploy and trying to get into the news cycle saying we're not letting anybody travel to Florida. And I was sending that to to my friend saying, hey, isn't this... A virtue signal all its own. By the way, where, where does your friend live? He lives in Chicago. Okay. So he may be influenced. He may be getting influenced up there because that's obviously Lori Lightfoot is running a cult up there in Chicago. So, so I send him this expecting like, oh yeah, look at that. They're, this is making divisive problems worse, right? Instead, I get smiley face emoji. Great. And I'm like, huh? I thought he was like joking. And so here's, I'm going to read you guys how this text message goes. It gets pretty entertaining. Love to hear your thoughts. It's a little bit on the lengthy side, but I'll try to read it pretty quickly. Okay. So smiley face emoji, great. And then me. Yes, that's not divisive at all, LOL. The liberals have gone off the rails. Him, so has the GOP. Me, boycotting a state because of nothing. There are no LGBT policies. Him, GOP nominated twice a draft dodger crook who governed only for the 35% who supported him. Me, every politician does that. Obama set the standard. Trump was just a natural reaction to Obama's divisiveness. Him, Trump was the most divisive president in American history. Me, with the best policies. Him, like which ones? Blowing the biggest hole in the deficit ever? I think that's an excuse Trump's policies were not very good. Me. Now we're being incredibly dishonest if we're talking about COVID, right? Yeah, completely dishonest. And I try to get back to him with some real policies. And so this is where I write Abraham Accords, USMCA, border wall, criminal justice reform, VA Choice Act, modernizing the military. He goes, aside from tax reform, not much. And I write, this is where I get kind of funny. What is it about peace in the Middle East that you hate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then he goes, the border wall Mexico paid for and built? Okay, I will concede Trump's foreign policy was good for the Middle East. Criminal justice reform was mostly a bad idea. 
And I write back, got us out of the Iran deal, Paris Climate Accords. And he goes, soft on crime. And I go, Trump was amazing. Soft on crime? Yeah. Don't, I don't know what is going on. Well, I mean, you could argue. I mean, again, this guy is, I think he has been assimilated by the Borg. You could argue that, you know, the First Step Act and some of the other criminal justice things did allow some criminals out of jail, but the left would have argued, had Barack Obama got something like that through, they'd be building a platinum statue of him somewhere off, off of you know Lakeshore Drive or something like that. But he gets no credit for any of these things. But okay, continue. So now he goes into, this is where I, I do, and, and I give, I say Trump made a huge mistake with this. So I admit one thing. I go, Trump's biggest mistake was not firing Anthony Fauci. And then he writes back saying, Fauci is one of the best and most valuable public health officials in the world. <laughs> and I write back to him and I say, you've lost your mind. He goes, were there mistakes? Sure. So let's compare Trump versus Fauci. Were there mistakes? I mean, you can play the clip of the guy back in you know the 1980s talking about how AIDS can be transmitted by just being in the room with a person. I mean, th this guy has been wrong. He's sort of like our president. He's been wrong on a lot of big things throughout his career. Exactly. And continues to be. He doesn't want to leave the stage now, but Rand Paul would like to have a conversation with your friend, certainly, about you know our funding this research, et cetera, et cetera. I know. It's, I don't understand this. So, so I say, he goes to me, well, what did Fauci do wrong? And I said, he called for lockdowns. He didn't require masks. Then he required them. Then he didn't require them. He said the vaccine would make it impossible to spread COVID. And he goes, well, the science kept changing. I mean, literally, is this sounding like he's in the board now, right? I mean, if this guy went to school with you, clearly he has about the best education that you can get, just about, right? Yeah. As we have seen with a lot of leftists, Ivy Leaguers, you know, people who have the very best education money can buy, they have completely achieved cognitive dissonance. They don't know. They will say that the sky is not blue and that the sun rises in the West. I mean, you know, and that's what's happened here. Exactly. And I'm admitting I'm trying to have a rational argument. So I'd love to hear what our viewers, our listeners think about this. So I write back and I said, I know Trump made a mistake. He should have taken the DeSantis route and refused to have any restrictions. DeSantis was right all along. And then he tries to, he backtracks a little bit, like I was right. So that, which is a good thing. He goes, you know, Fauci reacted to how the science changed. I was always against lockdowns. Public health officials should have a voice, blah, 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 goes through some other stuff. So anyway, we go through that. He's claiming, he claims I'm Monday morning quarterback. Then we go into the trade war tariffs, China, it just goes on and on. And, you know, we don't need to go through the whole thing. We can post some screenshots, but he's really just, I don't understand how, how out of the blue, what I'm trying to say is, is this the power of MSNBC and CNN? Like if, no matter what you think, if you sort of get stuck watching these things, you almost get like, it's like a mind control. It's a hive mind. It's absolutely a hive mind mentality. So I'll give my thoughts and we'll, we'll see if our listeners have anything to say about this. I'm not sure I want to pollute Midnight Ride Twitter, which is growing. And by the way, we are at Midnight Ride Pod with something like this. But here's my thoughts on it. We are seeing a little bit of a shift in who identifies as a Republican or as a Democrat. And this guy 
you know, seems like he's gone the way of the Lincoln group or whatever. Yeah, like a never Trump or rhino, right? It's almost like he's, yeah. He can't even say he's a Republican anymore because he, he said the GOP, you know, has lost its mind or whatever. Yeah. Last week, former President Trump and most of our Twitter followers and many of our listeners are hoping that this guy comes back. One thing that people like your friend and and some of the critics will say, and it's hard for me to disagree, is that the Republican Party, Liz Cheney has said this, that the Republican Party has become or should never or should endeavor not to become this cult of personality, that abandoning its principles because anything that this one person says is right, he is the Messiah, he is the, the Savior. And, and that well, because if we do that, if the GOP does that, they're no better than the Democrats who are the cult of personality, like with right? Obama and Fauci and everybody, you know, and now it's Zelensky, now it's Zelensky, right? It's like, yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit about that in our next segment with Barack Obama. Clearly that happened and still is the case with the Democrats, but it's kind of happening with a huge segment of the Republican Party. I, I cannot disagree with your friend on that point. And Donald Trump this past week said, you know, I'm thinking about running. I think everybody's going to love my decision, but listen, it's three years away. And, you know, the one thing that would stop me from running for president, he said, was problems with my health. Now, clearly, you know, he looks like he's in great health, but there are people who, and there are people who can live into their eighties and nineties and be sharp as a whip. And, and maybe he's, going to be the same three to five years to eight years from now that he is right now. But he at least acknowledged that and left the door open that he would not run, which I personally am hoping for, because you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, who has, you know, talk about mic drop moments. I mean, his policies have been the best in the union of the 50 states, but he also, listen, I mean, your friend will be talking about DeSantis five years from now if he wins, because that is the power of the left. I don't know if it's the power of, of the MSNBC and, and you know their media, even though, and thank God Elon Musk is now the largest shareholder of Twitter, big tech does filter out a lot of what people like your friend are seeing. I just think that we have seen a shift in who identifies as Republican or Democrat. I had an exchange with my aunt who you know, she's my mom's sister, loved her forever. We don't talk anymore because I told her the Democrat party that you grew up in, you know, in the 1960s is gone. They no longer represent the little guy. You are fighting for the elites at this point. And Donald Trump and the Republican party of 2022, they are the party of the blue collar. They are the party of the disaffected coal mine workers and auto plant workers. So your friend, who's probably an elite or somebody in the uh, laptop class, doesn't identify with rank-and-file Republicans anymore and just completely doesn't care about the issues. I think you may be onto something there because I'm trying to have, if you look at that text, I'm trying to have some really good policy discussions with him about some of the things Trump did. And he's just getting into this surface, oh, denying the election and all of these things like the what you hear, no, all, completely surface. Yeah. And he's completely lost sight of the American worker and what the American people need. Later in the text exchange, he starts bashing Trump for getting out of TPP and 
other things. And Trump was looking out for the American worker, the tariffs on China. He's trying to bring the supply chains back to the U.S. And he's trying to get rid of wealth inequality or at least reduce a little bit that way, not through just helping global elitist banker friends and hedge funds and private equity firms. Before we go to our next segment, I I do want to address this thing about a civil war, because we've heard that, we've seen that on social media, we've heard that, and we now live in a society where hyperbole carries the day. To break through the white noise on social media, you know, or, you know, if you're a pundit on cable news, to get your name out there, you kind of have to have a hot take that is hotter than anybody else is putting out there or else you're not going to be known. No, you're right. And I, you'll remember on the, the Midnight Ride a few episodes ago, we looked at some polling about people on Twitter and social media. And the reason I don't think we're heading for a civil war is because I think that it's just become so much of an eco chamber. And I can't remember what is it. It's like 97% of people don't tweet and 75% of people like aren't even on Twitter, aren't even on Twitter. And, and of that 20, remaining 25%, it's like most of them only check like once a month or something. That's not... That's true. I don't think enough people to start a civil war. Although on the other side of it, during the Revolutionary War, I think only 30% of Americans actually picked up arms. So there's a lot that goes both ways. There's a lot of stupid people out there that will listen to anything they're told. <laughs> Full disclosure, I bought more ammo yesterday. Did you get a good deal or is it the, the Biden inflation making it difficult? No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that those people that aren't on Twitter might be watching cable news. And that same phenomena exists where you have to cut through the white noise. You have to have the hottest hot take. We don't do that here on the midnight ride because we try to provide context and you know, we give our opinions, but we're not that radical. But I do think you are seeing a self-sorting where people are in this, this latest issue with parental rights and education. You are seeing a lot of people moving to the South and the Southeast and maybe the big sky country and and the Great Plains who are family oriented, who believe in the constitution, et cetera, et cetera. And those other places are losing citizens. They're losing voters. The Democrats are losing voters, but they still hold the corporate owned media. They still hold a lot of power. And they, as you can see with Antifa and BLM, they do have a lot of gray shirts that will go out and commit acts of violence. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. I don't think it's likely, but idiots like your friend, and I, I don't know if he's still your friend. I, I don't abandon friends. Like, I try not to abandon friends over politics, and it, we'll just have to see where what he thinks on that. I mean, if he were, like, an AOC progressive or something, that would be a problem, but um, I think he's still, he can be saved. Well, poll question right now at Midnight Ride Pod, uh, you can look for it, is have you ever abandoned a friendship over politics? So check that out, vote in it. We'll see what our, our listeners say. When we come back, Obamacare rammed through at the beginning of the Obama presidency on life support, thanks to our 45th president, but President Joe Biden may have just committed an illegal act that potentially could threaten your private health insurance. We'll talk about that when we come back on The Midnight Ride. We are back at The Midnight Ride. On to our next segment. President Obama visited the White House on Tuesday to see his 
former vice president, Joe Biden. Did you see that, Connor? Listen, we, you know, we are a weekly podcast, so we are way late to this discussion. Although what we're going to be talking about is, is actually the reason he was there, which is the Affordable Care Act. But ad nauseum, we've seen a lot of our podcasting brethren just talking about the embarrassing scene. And, and why was it embarrassing? Well, it was embarrassing because everyone that was at that event, who are, you know, all of the leftist kingmakers and, and senior politicians from Nancy Pelosi on down, just completely fawned over our 44th president and ignored President Biden to the point where he looked like a nerdy high school kid trying to trying to be noticed by the jocks and the cheerleaders. Yeah, outside of the COVID kiss with Nancy Pelosi, he was completely ignored almost. Like it was, it was like Obama was this mega rock star coming to the White House. Everyone is surrounding him. And I feel like Obama was just like a groupie or something. He's just one of the groupies. He was completely ignored. I mean, and we talk about November all the time. But when you consider that Barack Obama is not on the ballot in November and Donald Trump is not on the ballot in November, but all of the policies that this failed presidency have put into play will be there. Remember, in 2020, President Obama did not really campaign for vice president, his own vice president. So, I mean, it's clear that there's really not any warmth between them. And, you know, you almost felt sorry for the president last week when you saw that. I did a little bit. I mean, I, that's, I felt sorry for him, but his mental fortitude may not be there that he doesn't even know where he is. So he may not know the difference, but. Well, and that's another reason I feel sorry for him. I mean, he has been the Wall Street people, the billionaires who installed him as the nominee for the Democratic Party. They're using him too. It's just the name recognition and, and frankly, his connection with Barack that made him palatable to enough voters. We talked last week about some of those voters who may not have even known they were voting for him, but enough voters, you know, and and people who couldn't stand President Trump to get him across the finish line. But in a way he's being used because in the, in his twilight years, when he should be playing with his grandchildren, you know, he's having to do the toughest job in the world. So there's multiple ways that you can say, I feel sorry for Joe Biden. Yes, I do. And, and, The reason that Barack Obama was there was even more interesting. And I'm actually taking this from an article in the Wall Street Journal by Brian Blaze that talked a little bit about why he was there. And it was very ironic because he was there to reverse an IRS rule that has been in place since he was president. Obama was there to reverse the rule? Yes, he was. That was what he was doing. So when Obama became president and Obamacare was... Let me, let me just say, I'm glad that we're get going into this because most of the news coverage did not talk about the actual issues. And that's why people listen to the Midnight Ride. Continue. So when Obama was president, they directed the IRS to follow the law of Obamacare as written. Don't you think, Connor, you should, when a law is written, you should follow it as written, right? You don't just say, well oh, the law says white, so I think black, right? It's it, Isn't that the basis of our republic? I mean, you can't have a country 
if people are just going to say, well, I know the law says this, but I think it should say that. That's called chaos. That's called anarchy. Completely. And what happened this week is an example of how politicized the written laws have actually become. So quoting here from the Wall Street Journal. Let, let me just tell you, though, Paul, if somebody says the law is this and a citizen says, you know, I don't agree with that. I'm going to go do my thing. Those people go to jail. But when the legislator passes a law and the president signs it or a former president signs it, it's codified into the law of the land. When a citizen doesn't follow it, that's one thing. But when the person responsible for enforcing it, the chief executive says, no, I don't agree with it. I interpret it differently. That is a big problem. Big, big problem. And this is a little bit of a complicated, complex issue. So so if everybody could just bear with me and listen closely here, and I can explain what exactly was happening. So I'm quoting the Wall Street Journal right now. At issue is whether an employer's offer to provide health insurance to an employee's dependents disqualifies those dependents from Obamacare subsidies. The 2010 law created large subsidies for plans in the new exchanges. So subsidies means the taxpayers underwrite the cost of those plans. Someone, someone on Obamacare with a job, you know, with a certain amount of income will pay for their health insurance, but it's only a percentage. The American taxpayer pays the rest. If you are using the Obamacare exchange. So for example, if I have my coverage, right, provided by my employer, I'm just paying for that coverage and the employer is paying for it. Same thing goes for if my employer offers the coverage to my family, they get the coverage. And, and then you pay for it based on the job. What essentially Obamacare says is if your dependents are offered health care through the employer, that they are not eligible to get Obamacare subsidies, which makes sense. I mean, why should you get government underwritten health care when you're already getting or paying for health care through the employer? What Obama is there to do is to say, it doesn't matter if you're offered health care through the employer. If you want to get cheaper health care through Obama, through the Obamacare exchange, you can do that and have government socialized medicine anyway. And in 2010, uh, Obama had said that he wanted the cost to be under a trillion dollars for the first 10 years. And in order to do that, Congress purposely limited the subsidies to people without access to uh, an affordable employer plan. So now Biden and Obama have now just unilaterally said, we're changing the way that works. We're now allowing family members of covered people that already have access to health care to get cheaper government care instead in complete violation of the law. This is very, to me, very scary. They've just automatically, they just made up a law on their own, completely made it up. I have no doubt there's going to be some court cases here that are going to challenge this. And it, it goes back to everything that's been done from the vaccine mandates to the eviction moratorium to the remain in Mexico policy, just complete disregard for the law as written. But what's even worse about it, and I'd love to get your take on it, is there's just this push to get everybody on some sort of government handout and program permanently and just get no matter what. Now you're even getting working people completely dependent on the government. What is this about, Connor? 
Well, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to this show and who follow us on Twitter that would say that this is an insidious, this is a, this is the government trying to gain more control. We know that constitutionally, the ACA was somewhat sound, but I think President Trump was able to take out the requirement, right? I mean, you, you no longer have to... Yeah, the Supreme Court ruled the mandate was unconstitutional. Yeah, and so, you know, he couldn't get rid of the Affordable Care Act, but he basically kicked out one of the legs from underneath, you know, the table. So now it's it's standing very precariously on three legs. I, I think that the leftists want everyone on government health insurance. And if you have two employees, both with families and some of them with children in college, for instance, you know, and they both make about the same amount of money. By the way, employers pay about 75 to 80% of all health insurance is, is employer subsidized. It is. Um, as recently as 2020, it was about 78% of that. And so Obamacare is just a fraction of the market. But, you know, those employers will pay five-sixths of what the actual annual premium or policy is, and the employer pays about one-sixth. That being said, it is a fraction of what you would have to pay under Obamacare. And so clearly the goal here is to get people who are already struggling with all of these other Biden policies, record inflation, gas prices, et cetera. Just out of necessity, a lot of people are going to try to do this. And that is going to burden the American taxpayer. These are not people that the mandate, the unconstitutional mandate that they put forth back in in uh, 2009 that are, yeah, that was designed to put, you know, these healthy people who thought that they were invulnerable, that they were not going to get sick, make them pay. Cause if the healthy people aren't paying for health insurance, the system is not sustainable, but we're talking about people who have older children and families. This is basically designed to eliminate employer provided healthcare. And in a way, I, I feel like that's kind of bad for the job market and things like that. Would you agree with that, Paul? I would. I mean, I, I think employers, it's a very competitive market out there. And by offering benefits like good health care plans, employers are able to attract good talent. But furthermore, according to a 2020 Congressional Budget Office projection, uh, this by changing this rule, it's going to cost $45 billion over a decade. That is not chump change. And in the era of the high deficits and all of this government spending, Biden is trying to spend even more money and turn this into election, an election issue. I just don't get, by making everybody dependent on the government, maybe he just thinks that, I mean, is it like legal bribery or something? He's like, I gave you more stuff, now vote for me. Is that what this is about? Well, he is desperate, right? I mean, the writing is on the wall that they are, the Democratic Party is going to get slaughtered in November. And this past week, in addition to this thing, we saw an extension of the college loan payment moratorium, which we will indirectly address in our next segment. I just paid the day before he said that I just made my final student loan payment. Why the heck did I do that? Why did I pay off my loans? <laughs> I could have gotten more free stuff. Just kidding. I did pay off my student loans many years ago, but 
would have been nice to know back then that I could have just had them all been forgiven. Yeah, you were a sucker. But, you know, that that will be politically unpopular with a lot of regular voters, like older people like you, who actually paid their college loans. But again, the most fervent part of their base is, you know, the younger voter. I mean, the younger voter and historically minority voters, although Biden is losing them in droves, you know, those folks, they've tried to buy their votes historically. They're doing it again. But another thing that happened this past week, and I don't think we have time to touch on it, but we saw in China, in Shanghai, people starting to get angry about governmental, you could call them healthcare measures, lockdowns, COVID-related lockdowns. And China I don't know about their healthcare exchange, but I would imagine that it's all government provided. We do know in our own hemisphere, Cuba, and what I call Cuba Sur, Venezuela, uh, you know, they have these sorts of things. If the government controls your healthcare. Well, you know, if you ask AOC and Rashida Tlaib and everything, they'll tell you that Cuba is just has the best healthcare in the world, the model for healthcare. But when the government controls your healthcare, and, and you know some of our friends north of the border, we have quite a few Canadian listeners we've gained after the Freedom Convoy. They will tell you that some are happy with their care, but there's a lot of medical tourism people coming down here because they cannot get some of the better procedures. But the government is the one choosing, and you know I think for all its flaws, you know the Democratic Party will not say that we have the best healthcare system in the world, which we clearly do. We are the envy in terms of the types of medical advances that have been made. But some of the low-hanging fruit, reforming our transparency on pricing for procedures, the price of pharmaceuticals, they don't want to take on big pharma because they're bought and paid for by them. They don't want to take on some of the issues in the industry that are causing the prices to go up. So rather than do that, they do something like this, which is only going to make things worse. And we should be very skeptical when the government is illegally, without Congress, you know, without congressional voting, you know, Congress voting on it, trying to just unilaterally say, okay, now you can all go to this. They're trying to kill employer-backed health care, and I think it would be devastating for American families. If anybody has a question about how government health care works, talk to a veteran. Talk to a veteran that goes to the VA. And there are some great doctors at the VA. There are some great healthcare workers. But I think what you'll hear is that the bureaucracy of the VA is just untenable. The time that you need to wait for procedures, you have the government deciding what you can and can't get. You've got, in many cases, very overcrowded facilities. This was another thing that you could have put in your text string uh, to your buddy that Trump had to come in there and fix this. Well, I did. I said I mentioned VA choice in there. And what, essentially what that did was it allowed if VA was going to take more than 30 days to schedule an appointment or a procedure or anything that you need, you had the right to then go into the private sector healthcare to get that done. This was one of the crises of the Obama administration because the bureaucracy had gotten so bad there that some of the heroes of Vietnam and Korea were literally dying on wait lists for procedures they could have got if they had private health insurance, but the bureaucracy and the wait lists, very similar to what you see in places like Canada and Cuba and Venezuela. And the UK at the national NHS and a few other countries as well in Europe. Yeah, we don't want that here. 
And it's very, I, I actually, I consider myself pretty savvy on these things, but I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners, Paul, because, you know, I didn't really know the Biden administration tried to slip this by us. So what, what happens next? Has this gone into effect? And, and I guess when do the lawsuits, lawsuits and court challenges start happening? Well, right now it's a proposed rule. So I think they have, there's a period of public comment and then the IRS will make the decision whether it's going to be go in as a rule or not go in as a rule. I mean, given who's in control of the IRS, I have no doubt that it will go into effect and they will probably have it go into effect uh, within a month of the midterms so that they have something to say to talk to people that they they helped strengthen Obamacare. But uh, I have no doubt that there's going to be lawsuits by taxpayers who are claiming that taxpayer money is being illegally spent. And I think that I think you're going to to see that this is going to be a big battle. And frankly, it should be overturned. I don't I'm not an attorney, but it's not in the law. And if it's not in the law, then why should it be allowed to happen? Well, our listeners by now have their representatives and senators on speed dial. So it's time for it's time to remind these folks that this is a government, not just, you know, before the people, by the people, but of the people. And, And it's time for us to to uh, wind up those phones and, and uh, or hit the hit the uh, speed dial and get our opinion known. This is a, a path to perdition here. This is a very bad bad idea. It's also unconstitutional, and it must not stand. When we come back, a crazy case in academia. If you thought academia had completely lost its compass, wait till you hear our next story when we come back on the Midnight Ride. We're back. And, you know, this third segment, Paul, we like to have whenever there is good news to kind of close the week on a positive note. And we'll just call this segment Karma for Leftists. Uh, There was a court case that we were made aware of recently where the good guys won and, uh, you know, the unhinged leftists lost big time. Uh, You want to tell us about that? Yes, there was a case uh, that began in 2016 at Oberlin College, which uh, if those of you that know Oberlin, it's a small liberal arts school, popular for people that like to go into a higher institute of learning to do gender studies, (laughs) (laughs) ethnic studies, uh, you know, any critical race theory, a bachelor of science and critical race theory, you name it. It actually is one of the best or most prestigious liberal arts schools in the country, but you might know it. You probably don't know it. I didn't really know much about it, but it is the alma mater of Ed Helms, who is famously the guy who lost his tooth on The Hangover. Oh, amazing. So, okay. Well, that's a... So maybe they have a good drama department or a bad drama department, depending on how you look at that. (laughs) That's true. Well, I'm looking at the school a little bit differently now, but regardless, (laughs) because I did love that movie, but I loved The Hangover too, by the way, when they went to Thailand. Did you see that one? I did. I did not. After that one, though, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to watch The Hangover 3. I think there was a third one, right? Yeah, to, to get, there was a Hangover 3, I didn't say, but my favorite line in Hangover 2, and I don't want to get us the explicit label on this one, but, but it is when the, he's, he's with this uh, prostitute and, and uh, turns out to be a man. And the prostitute go and they're in they're in Thailand and she 
and he, she, whatever they goes, well, that's why they call it Bangkok and not bang cunt. <laughs> not only did we earn the explicit, you know, we've actually had people DM us on Twitter and say, Hey, I thought this was a family show. I know. So sorry guy. Maybe we, I don't know. We could have our producer block those out, but we are going to throw up the explicit label on this one. We actually can do that beforehand, but next time we'll give you a disclaimer. Uh, speaking of the hangover, the board of regents or whoever, the people who do the fundraising and the paying of, who, you know, all of the people of influence at Oberlin College are experiencing a massive hangover today. Yes, they are, uh, Connor. It started with a shoplifting case. In 2016, an African-American student named Jonathan Aladine was caught trying to steal a bottle of wine from Gibson's Bakery, which was established in 1885, really an institution for the school. The, and the, the, the grandson of the owner tried to stop Aladdin from, from stealing the bottle, and a fight ensued. Police were called. Uh, Aladdin and two other students were arrested. It's uh, automatically, right away, you know, the owners of the, the bakery were, were white, the shoplifters were black, and students, professors, and administrators started to protest Oberlin maintained uh, the school and this is very you know for the school to get involved i mean they started maintaining in court filings that the son the grandson the owners uh of gibson's bakery violently and unreasonably attacked an unarmed student oberlin and students started calling for uh, massive protests the school handed out flyers denouncing the bakery as a racist business called for a boycott faculty members uh, encouraged students to continue the protest, saying they're very proud of our students. Uh, and uh, what happened, and that is not how the police saw it. I mean, the police report, this is a very clear case of shoplifting. The, the person tried to steal from the store, so it had nothing to do with race. And yet the student body and the school just really started to trash the owners of Gibson's. And uh, in a long-awaited ruling, wait, didn't they? They didn't they tell their students not to shop at Gibson's anymore? They did. They told them not to shop at students. So the school actually promoted a boycott. And uh, in 2019, a jury awarded the Gibsons 44 million dollars in compensatory and punitive damages. A judge later reduced it to 25 million. And today, or not today, it was a few days ago. The, a unanimous three-judge panel for the Ohio Court of Appeals upheld that ruling and said that Oberlin was liable for libel, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and intentional interference with the business relationship and upheld that law. And now Oberlin is going to uh, have to pay the owners of Gibson's a, a total of $25 million in damages plus... $6.2 million in attorney's fees that the Gibsons had to spend to fight this frivolous thing. And it's really an interesting, an interesting ruling and one that could have uh, impacts going down the line. But uh, it just shows how far these leftist schools will go to fight to, to, to double down almost. They, they are doubling down and they're fighting this boogeyman We've seen it a lot recently. I mean, Jonathan Stewart coming out and saying the American dream is a fallacy for 
people of color, things like that. I mean, listen, these people are living in the 1940s. They like to pretend that we are living in the pre-civil rights era, but I would be willing to bet a lot of money that Jonathan Aladdin is a little rich kid, you know? It's almost, it's almost comical, you know? It's like this upper middle class or rich kid goes into a store to steal a bottle of, you know, Merlot. We don't know, that, yeah, we don't know <laughs> that he's a rich kid, but, you know, there's not a lot of like, yeah, he's at Oberlin. He's attending Oberlin, okay? So if you're at Oberlin, it's very likely that you attended a very good high school, right? And you either have the money to pay the tuition or you had the grades that qualified you for, you know, merit scholarships or whatever. Bottom line is I've doubt very much that this child was a victim of oppression growing up. He's stealing wine. Okay. And, uh, he gets caught red handed by the cops and this family owned business, a pillar of the university community is basically shunned, is blacklisted by Oberlin, which I think it's in a town called Oberlin, right? I mean, if the school puts out to the entire student body and all of the people who live around there, who many of whom their livelihood depends on the school, that could pretty much kill the entire business. And so good on him for suing, but it's unconscionable what they did. Now, you talked about the repercussions, 31 million dollars. Where do you think that money's going to come from? It's going to come from children, people's tuition. I mean, tuition's going to have to go up. How's the school going to be able to pay for all that? It's not, they don't just have $30 million sitting around. It's the students of Oberlin that are going to get hurt. That's right. And so it's either going to be daddy deep pockets is going to have to pay a little bit more for tuition fees. If you look at your child's, you know, college tuition bill, you may see a number of weird fees in there that are adding up to a little bit more than an insignificant pittance. And, you know, so there could be increases in fees and increases in tuition. But also, you know, if it's not daddy deep pockets, it's going to be college loans, which brings us back to the Biden administration. And they made a promise, or at least if you listen to AOC and, and Grandma Liz Warren, they made a promise to eliminate college debt. They haven't done that, but they are extending this moratorium on the payments. There are a lot of young people out there who are crushed under the weight of these exorbitant tuition payments. It's nobody's fault but their own. I mean, if you want to go to Oberlin College and you want to pay that freight, that should be on you. Oberlin should, if they're charging money because they tried to crush a business, they should go out of business, but they will no doubt be propped up by the leftists. No, and this is an example of mob rule. I mean, people talk about the mob and some, in many cases, the leftist mob. This is an example of that, getting the pitchforks and the torches out to come after some innocent business owners. And I'm just so happy that the appeals court said this won't stand. You can't just gang up on people like this, especially for something completely unfounded. And, you know, mob rule has happened. I mean, it has happened. I think it, it goes all the way back to, you know, the Salem witch trials. But throughout, you know, in the South, we had the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, certainly a lot of local government officials and business owners and people who, who were in cahoots with them. 
But now, you know, we see it manifesting itself in different ways. Kudos to this bakery. Kudos to the Court of Appeals. And listen, we should never bow down to, no matter how loud the shouts are, to voices like this. If people are breaking the law, if people are violating your your rights, we must stand up and fight. Because if we don't, the mob is only going to get more emboldened. Completely. And this shut it down. And hopefully... It will put the mob at bay. But in many cases, what is scary about it is the what I find to be the most scary is that the mob could then say, well, the courts are not supporting our justice and start to start to delegitimize our own institutions. And that's that's another issue that can happen when you have crazed individuals not get what they want from the government. That's absolutely right. Hey, before we go, I want to I want to give you a quick And let me just say, too, that the Oberlin case is only one example. There are we could do an entire podcast talking about the crazy actions of not just private schools, but also state schools like, you know, state university systems and things like that. It is happening all the time. Every now and then on the Midnight Ride, we give you a a look into it. But if you have children who are coming of age, you need to think long and hard about not only what school they they should go to, but whether they should even go to college, if it's even necessary for the profession that they want to be in, because it is is a dark place out there. And Paul and I like to joke, you know, Hillsdale College is the only place our kids will go to, but, you know, we're losing uh, the universities by the day. Yeah, my son, you know, he's great at football. I was like, you may be able to be starting for Hillsdale someday. (laughs) <laughs> so as so we'll have to see. Hey, hey, by the way, uh, Connor, what what's going on with that Twitter poll? I think they're division four, Hillsdale. Yeah. Another little, you know, good news tidbit before we go. And the Twitter poll, you know, it went up uh, on Sunday right now. And we'll, you know, you'll see throughout the week. If you want to vote on this poll at Midnight Ride Pod, the question is, have you ever abandoned a friendship over politics? And another sort of good news story is as Paul Runyon talked about the people that aren't on Twitter. Well, these are people who are on Twitter and 63% right now say they have never abandoned a friendship over politics. Only 37% have ever abandoned a friendship over politics. We had a couple comments. One guy said, Hey, if uh, the woogie 57 said, yes, my country's being destroyed and anybody that supports Joe is no friend of mine. We we had another guy, NC, North Carolina, Manuclear, says, no, but I have liberal family, family friends who have cut off our relationship because I voted for Trump. And I have no doubt that I have lost friends, people who have cut me off because of my political views. It's a sad commentary on our society, but that, that poll does give us hope. Final thoughts, Paul? Well, it does give me a little bit of hope, but uh, what gives me even more hope is in just such a short time in the middle of the night, how many people responded to this poll so quickly. So we've got a lot of listeners out there. Things are growing. Give us five-star review, smash the like button, tell your friends. The Midnight Ride is uh, becoming a force here. Yeah, we definitely want to thank you all for joining us on the Midnight Ride. And and please, if you like the show, tell a friend. That is the strongest way to your endorsement. The endorsement of friends is the best way to, to keep us going as we are expanding around the union and telling people about the threats to our culture, to our society, but most importantly, 
to our Constitution. That is why we started this podcast. So if you believe in that mission, please help spread the word. For Paul Runyon, I'm Connor Coughlin, thanking you for joining us. And we'll see you very soon on another edition of The Midnight Ride.